Well, I titled the sermon, uh, The Blind Leading the Blind. And I want to begin by asking for two brave volunteers. I need two brave volunteers. Younger people, maybe? Yeah? We, we, okay. Who we got here? We have Declan? I tell you what, you and Lincoln, you brothers, you guys want to help me out? You guys want to help me out? You want to help? Okay. Well, I'll tell you, we got three volunteers now. I love that problem. I tell you what, let's just go with these two. Declan, why don't you wait, and, and uh, we'll get you on the next time I need volunteers. All right. So, first volunteer right here. We'll go Lincoln first. Okay. Now, I'm going to double wrap this. All right. So, you didn't expect this to be the situation when you came to church today, did you? Can you see anything? Go, okay, that's good. That's the goal. All right. And is it Ty? James. Oh, sorry. All right, James. Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do. Lincoln, you are the blind man. Ty, you're the leader. You get in front. Oh, James. <laughs> sorry. James, you're the leader. Okay, but, but here's the funny thing about this. You're also going to be blindfolded. This is going to be an experience of the blind leading the blind. Okay? Now, you guys have an assignment. I don't want to have you hurt yourselves, so go slow. Okay? You got me? Go slow. Okay? Now, Lincoln, you go like this. Keep your hands on James's shoulders. And you guys just wander around church for a while. Okay? <laughs> Try not to hurt anybody. And I'm going to preach. Okay. Nice and easy, right? Okay, there you go. Keep going all the way around. All right, this is going to be a little bit of a sideshow here. The blind leading the blind, coming alive before our very eyes. Now stay in this room. Don't go in the kitchen. All right. Let's begin this morning with misplaced confidence. I want to move through these verses little by little and... We'll let these guys wander around and eventually we'll let them sit down. Misplaced confidence. Paul is addressing his Jewish audience now. And he's calling attention to something that is blaring to his eyes, but seems to be um, not a big deal to the Jewish audience he's addressing. Okay, so let's begin here. I want to begin misplaced confidence. You can look to your ethnic or family heritage for confidence in salvation. You can, you can say, well, I was born into a Christian family. And here's the thing. The, the, the Lord uh, is addressing the Jewish audience through Paul. These are the religious people of the day. Okay, The pagans have been addressed already in chapter 1. Now, chapter 2, he's dealing primarily with the religious people. And guess what? That could potentially be us today. So I want to be aware. We're not just talking about the Jewish audience. We're talking about Religious activity, which we are engaged in to some degree here this morning. You guys are doing great. Doing great. Try going up right through the middle now. Yeah, good. Let's begin in verse 17. <laughs> this is awesome. Paul says this. But if you call yourself a Jew. Now, just stop there. We didn't get very far. We're in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew. So he's addressing the Jews, and he says, listen, you call yourself a Jew, 
And that carries with it a tremendous amount of history, doesn't it? Think of God's chosen people, the Jews. And we were talking, we're going all the way back to Abraham, right? And the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, and, and he said, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to make you a nation and you will be my people and I will be your God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he did. He he, he multiplied Abraham in miraculous ways. And here now you have Jews in a New Testament era. You call yourself a Jew. Well, they say, well, Paul, Abraham is our father. This is who we are. And here's the amazing thing. Paul's the one speaking. Paul himself is the Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. The one who, if anyone had reason to boast, we know Paul says it was him. So he is not being um, anti-Semitic here. Just let's, let's be clear. Paul is speaking to his beloved countrymen. These are his people. And he's calling out a tremendous error in their situation. All right, guys, you did great. You did great. Come on over here. Ooh, punch you in the gut. Ooh, okay. All right. I'll let you out of this thing. Okay. You never know what's going to happen in church. You don't even get any candy out of this deal. Sorry. Okay. Good work. No more giggling. <laughs> I'm joking. Abraham was our father, Paul. This is who we are. You don't understand. We have the covenants. We have the law. We have the promises. We're good to go. We're good to go. Hey, I was born into this, right? Who we are. We're a very religious family. You might hear this even in our day. This is what we do on Sundays. This is what we've always done on Sundays. Your father, your grandfather, and his grandfather, they were all preachers, right? Which means we're in good shape. We're in good shape, right? Huh. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not genetic. It's not passed down automatically. This is not something you're born into. This is the grace of God. We're going to see this now, but Paul dials this in, and, and he does so with all of these little steps. He says, you call yourself a Jew. He's calling into question that fact in itself. You, you've got a label, but does it fit? Yeah, but Pastor Jeremy, I drive around and I listen to the Christian radio. I go to Good Shepherd. My family's always gone to Good Shepherd. I was literally born, well, maybe not literally, thankfully, but born into this church. I've gone here my entire life. My whole family goes here. I'm good to go, right? Wrong. Wrong. This is not something you inherit. And, and we, we, we have to call this out. It's, it seems obvious, but there are a whole lot of people who are operating, some even subconsciously, assuming they're good to go because their parents and the generations before them walked with Christ. Hmm. Number two, education and knowledge. You can misplace your confidence in education and knowledge. Verse 17b to 18. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and, and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, so you would just ca- capture these words, what's he saying here? Well, okay, so let's say you are a Jew and you have this law. You even boast in it. You boast in God, his power, his glory, his might. He's awesome and he's my God. You know his will. You approve what is excellent. You're instructed from the law. Now, let's be clear. What the Jews were given was magnificent. Paul's going to affirm that in chapter 3. Oh man, the law is beautiful. It's spectacular. But simply possessing it does not mean anything. doesn't guarantee anything. It'd be like going down to the, to the bookstore and buying a Bible and carrying it around and saying, I'm good to go. I got a Bible. And, and someone says, well, I'm not actually sure. No, no, no. Look, it's an ESV study Bible. You know what I'm saying? I'm okay now. No. But take it one step farther. I'm reading that Bible. I'm studying that Bible. I'm even affirming the things that I read. I'm nodding yes and amen. That's good. I like it. I'm even boasting about it. I'm telling other people, this is amazing stuff in here. Is that enough? Is what that activity, is that saving? No, no. There's something far more that is necessary than simply owning and reading and enjoying reading your Bible. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not a scholastic achievement. Some people will have this inclination to to approach their Bibles in a very academic way, as if to, to say, you know, if I just know it enough, then I'll have peace with God. If I know as much as I can, maybe I'll even study the languages. I'll I'll, I'll learn the Greek and the Hebrew so that I can have confidence that I'm going to be okay in the last day. Absolutely not. That's not where it's at. You can make an idol out of your Bible. Do you realize that? You can bow down in an unhealthy way to the Bible and miss the whole point of bowing to God. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not a scholastic achievement. Number three, a misplaced confidence, position, and influence. Verse 19 and 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that's what James was was feeling, right? I'm a guide to the blind. I'm leading the blind guy, right? We're going all the way around the church. And you're a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, And you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These are beautiful things. And and to be clear, none of this stuff is wrong or evil. These are good things. We would all affirm, we love this. I mean, put it this way, guiding the blind, that's a wonderful thing to do, especially spiritually. Shining a light in the darkness, absolutely. We're a city on a hill. That's our call. Instructing the foolish, opening their eyes to the truth of God, showing what is right from wrong, good from evil. That's a wonderful thing to do. Teaching the simple. That's what the Proverbs are all about. The words of wisdom. 
We possess the quintessence. What a great word that is. The quintessence, the, the embodiment, the, the epitome of truth. It's truth with a capital T. We have it right here. Bible open. Hmm. You can be in a position like I find myself in this morning. Preaching from the word open. Teaching, instructing, correcting. And be completely unsaved. Thankfully, that is not the condition of my soul today. But it is entirely possible. And I think likely in churches across our nation today. In Jesus' day, in Paul's day, he was targeting the rabbis, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Not all, but many of these religious influencers of the time were dead men. They were dead men who had the light in their hands. They were, they were shining the light to others and walking in darkness themselves. I've heard of people in seminary being saved. Can you imagine? You go to seminary and, 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 and you're studying the Word of God to proclaim the Word of God and then you realize you're not even saved? It's possible. Praise God that some realize that. I sat under the preaching of a man for years who I believe now was never saved. And he instructed. Sometimes he had amazing sermons. Other times I'm like, uh-uh, oh no. Right? That's not, that's not there. It is dangerously possible for pastors, for elders, for Sunday school teachers, for professors in Christian universities, for authors or bloggers or musicians to carry the label of Christ, to even speak the word of the Scriptures and be completely dead in their sins. Jesus says this, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. It's the seat of authority. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves, they're not willing to, to even move with their finger that burden. Hypocrisy. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, to make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. You realize that's possible in our day too? It happened in Jesus' day. It happens in our day. The only difference is YouTube. Right? Think of this. The scope and range of false teachers is just heightened by their access to the internet. The number of people who can be led astray by false teachers is at an all-time high. Discernment, Christians. Discernment. Who do you listen to? What is the fruit of their life? Do they practice what they preach? Hmm. Position and power 
cannot save anyone from the wrath of God. You can be a pastor and you can go to hell. You can be an elder in the church your entire life and unsaved and under the wrath of God. It's one of the reasons why we are very slow and careful with who we put in leadership positions, in teaching positions in this church. We need to know them well. We need to see evidence of their life that confirms their words, right? No one just saunters up here to preach the word. No one just walks in and becomes an elder. That, that's a, a very small door. Qualified from the word. Affirmed by those who know them well. It's another reason why we have careful accountability for our leadership as well. We love one another. We care enough to ask hard questions. We point out sin if need be. We, we, we hold one another in that place. To whom much is given, much will be required. Now, we're all works in progress, right? None of the leaders in this church are perfect men. None of us are. We're progressing in holiness. We're not perfect in holiness. But we are to be an example of holiness. Not just proclaimed holiness, but lived holiness. Lived out. Hmm. Proclamation without practice. Paul continues to just drive this point home. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? These are some interesting examples that Paul gives. He calls out this, 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 this instinct of, of sanctified hypocrisy. Oh, how easy it is to, to come up into the pulpit and say, everybody, you guys should do this. And to have an entire week of my life denying the very thing that I'm calling you to do. That, that's not okay. One of the things I love most about preaching is I get pummeled all week long to prepare me to stand up before you. The sermon must live in the preacher long before the sermon will come from the preacher. But this isn't just about preachers, is it? This is about all of us. We are all called to be those who proclaim, who speak, and it's dangerously possible for our lives to completely deny our message. Hey, we're all about grace. We're all about the grace of God. We love the gospel. He showed grace to people who didn't deserve it. Did my week demonstrate that? Does the way that I engage on Facebook confirm that I'm all about grace? Mm, that's convicting, isn't it? It is so easy to become sanctified in our hypocrisy. To walk a double standard. Well, we expect this of this political party, but, but not of our own. I mean, of course we're right, but we don't have to hold the standard. Hold on. Do you see how easy it would be? Do as I say, not as I do. That, my friends, is not just a, a parenting faux pas. That is a dangerous way to live. And deadly for those who behold it and experience it. I think one of the reasons that young people run from the church is because 
of hypocrisy in the home. I praise God that I grew up in a home where I saw real gospel happening. I saw my parents confessing their sins and calling me to confess mine. You know how powerful that is? I knew that my parents were sinners, desperate in need of Jesus Christ. I knew it. But I also knew they knew it. You see the difference? I saw them know that, delight in that, verbalize that, and display that. Not weak, real. Real. Parents, be real with your need for Jesus Christ. And you will woo the hearts of your kids to a real gospel that's powerful to save you and them. The same is true for all of us. He gives these examples. And these are interesting examples. You would almost expect Paul to kind of give the, the, the more sanctified sins. These are pretty blatant sins, right? Stealing, committing adultery, and, and robbing temples. What is that all about? Who's doing that? Well, apparently, in this day, there was such a, a, a detestation of, of idolatry in temples that at night, the, the faithful Jews would go out and, and, and sneak in and steal from the temples and feel like they were doing God a favor, right? They were opposing idolatry, and so they were, they were stealing out of the temples. But the problem is, is they were, they were in the temple. They were defiled in the very act of opposing. It's completely inconsistent. And so Paul calls it out. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. None. Sexual purity in an age of total moral collapse. It stands out, friends. We need this. Ravi Zacharias, oh, my heart breaks over this. What a nightmare that is for a man with a, a, a legacy of ministry and then he passes away and all of this bubbles up to the surface. What a train wreck that was. How many times have people in church been caught with their hand in the offering plate? Embezzling, stealing, taking what is not theirs. It's a big deal. One of the things I love about this church is the care with finances that we have. We had a systems audit when I came in 2008, and we, re, we, we re-examined every single part of our process. When, when the dollar goes into the, the box, how is it handled? Where does it go? How is it passed from one place to the next? And each part of that system has accountability and care. There's multiple people involved. And you know what's great? I'm really not involved. I love that. I told them, I don't want to have much to do with that at all. I'm just, I'm, I'm off away. You guys take care of that. And let me know how it goes. Praise God for that. Keeps things simple for me. Hmm. I'm grateful for the people who are involved. That's a burden to carry. A responsibility we take very seriously. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You see the irony here? We love the law. We love these Bibles. We carry them around. Well, Paul's like, but you don't obey it. 
you're living contrary to what you love so much and boast about. And then he adds this, and oh man, this, this would have hurt. I mean, this would have really been the sting in his words. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The inconsistent, the hypocritical. Now let's be clear. I love how R.C. Sproul said it. He said, listen, the name of God will be blasphemed among the Gentiles regardless of you as well. Right? That, that, that is an instinctual blaspheming. That's what Gentiles do. Pagans do. It's, it's natural. It's, it's natural to all men. But don't give them an, a reason for it. Don't, don't give an opportunity, an excuse for it. We should be those who, who call out the blasphemy as, as completely inaccurate. You will be known by your love. Not by your hypocrisy. Hmm. Heavy, isn't it? This meets us, friends. All of us. Hmm. Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come in among you in sheep's clothing. They dress up like sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them how. How will you spot them? How will you know? When you're on TV, and, and you see a preacher, he seems like a pretty good guy. He's preaching away. Well, how are you going to know? By the fruit of their life. You're going to know by the fruit of their life. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Watch their life for a while. See how it unfolds. Friends, we are called to discernment in a day where false teachers and wolves are all over the place to be on our guards. One of the most important duties of the elders in a church, guard against false teachers who would come into the church to ravage the church. Protect the sheep. You don't do that with a gentle hug. You do that with a rod. A firm hand of protection for the sheep. Guard against false teaching, false doctrine. Understand this, Paul wrote to Timothy. In the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. You kind of hear the echo of a list we recently heard. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, good, uh, of God. Now listen how he, how he lands it. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's dangerously possible. You can broadcast that on TV, right? You can have... 50,000 people crawl into a building to, 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 to soak that up. The appearance of godliness that is denied without, there's no power there. There's no gospel. There's no glory in Christ. It's just bad fruit. And Paul says, listen, avoid such people. I would add, avoid such churches. Avoid the places where that is on display. Run. Get out. 
It's a den of wolves. Hmm. Cultural Christianity is something that we've got to be aware of. Let's just turn it a little bit inward here rather than out there. Let's, let's consider here how easy it would be to go through the motions, to, to, to stand and sing, to sit and, and listen to the sermons, to come week in and week out, and, and to feel like, well, I'm, I'm pretty Christian, right? I, I do stuff. I do things. I'm religious. That's a false hope. That's not saving anybody. Showmanship. Cultural Christianity. Just being in and around church. Can't save anybody from the wrath of God. Misplaced hope. Now, ceremony without substance. Someone asked me what I was preaching on on Mother's Day, and I said, oh yeah, circumcision. <laughs> They're like, really? I'm like, that's where the text got us, and so that's where we're going. And so here we go. Ceremony without substance. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value, he says to the Jews, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break it. You see what he's saying? You're missing the point. You think that the ceremony of circumcision is the end all. That the sign of the covenant is what it's all about. That you're good to go. And he's like, but you're not walking in obedience. You're denying the sign. It means nothing to you. Genesis 17, for those who are like, why are we talking about circumcision in church? It's the sign that God gave to Abraham of the Abrahamic covenant, right? I'm going to do all these things. It's unconditional. It's going to happen. And you are going to be my people. And here is the sign. I'm going to set you apart from among the nations. And this is how I'm going to do it. You are to be circumcised. And every child who is born in your home is to be circumcised on the eighth day, set apart with the sign of the covenant. And so, for all of the Jews who would be receiving these words from Paul, they would be like, yeah, but Paul, on the eighth day, I was circumcised. I'm good to go. And Paul's saying, your circumcision means nothing if you have no heart to obey the Lord. Right? It's, it's not like you can look to it. I, I would add this. Baptism in our day. Right? No, pastor, here's the deal, man. I was baptized. I'm okay. I'm good to go. Paul would say, wrong. There's nothing about being baptized that saves you. Don't put your confidence in the baptism. Put your confidence in Christ. That's what the baptism points to. It's always about that. So next week, we're going to have a celebration of baptism. And one of the most important things I've been talking with people about as we prepare for this is, do you love the gospel? Are you walking with Jesus? Is He your Savior and Lord today already such that this is a proclamation of what He's done? Not that you're coming to baptism to be saved. Hmm. You set apart for obedience. This is the core of it. It's what He said last week. It goes back to that. 
It's about obedience. God's people obey God. That's, what it, that's, that's the consistency that's in, in view. Now, not perfectly, not, not without sin, obviously, but, but progressively and joyfully. Ceremonies, rituals, objects, places, traditions, all of these can be made into idols. Just look at the, the history. It's one of the reasons I'm certain that God hid away the Ark of the Covenant. Imagine how much idolatry could happen if people found it. They made the temple into an object of worship rather than the God of the temple. The temple is destroyed. That's the gift and grace of God. They were doing the same thing with the law. You can do the same thing with the place, with the church. Don't turn a ceremony or a ritual or a tradition into the object of worship in your life. It's a golden calf. It won't save. Hmm. Religious activities and ceremonies cannot save anyone from the wrath of God. I was just struck as Gracie and I drove in this morning and we drove past church after church on the way in and I, I was just thinking to myself, how much of the world's religious activity is godless have you ever wondered that i mean just empty hollow worthless and vain imagine if you could see the bar graph of those who are actually saved today versus all of the various expressions of religious activity taking place i think it would be surprising It's so easy for us to want something concrete, to look to something, to do something, to say, no, this is it. This is where my confidence is because I have this, or I did this, or I went there. That's not the gospel. That is not the way of salvation. This is, however, a beautiful display at the end of this. What an amazing theology he weaves into this. Now, he's going to build this out, obviously, but today I want to just kind of hit on this and, and open us up to the, the, the concept, at least, and plant the seeds here. Religion or regeneration. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Oh, wow. Now we're getting to the heart of the gospel. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Who can see the heart? God. God sees the heart. So you have all this activity, all of these things, you know, the, the, the religious establishment showing and, and, and having all this display of religiosity and, and even circumcision itself was, was taken as an outward sign. And God says, you're missing the whole point. It was never about just that. It's about faith. It's about something that's inside. That's the reality that the Lord sees. And it is the reality that He brings to pass. Miraculously so. Only he can. Exterior facade versus interior transformation. 
That is the way you parse true Christianity from worthless religious activity. True Christianity is authentically real from the inside out. You're literally changed inside out. You don't just paint your face and put on all this stuff and, and, and put on the clothes and, and carry this and that. No, it's like he changed me. I am not who I was. How does it happen? Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. You know what's amazing about the Abrahamic covenant? Is that it points us to the new covenant. It points us to the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It is a promise that will not be retracted. It is certain and sure because God said, I'm going to do it. Shortly thereafter, well, maybe not shortly, but a little while later, you have the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law. That was not unconditional. That was a conditional covenant. He gave it to the people and he said, do this and I will bless you. Disobey this and I will turn against you. You will forfeit the blessings if you break this law. So here's the amazing situation you have with these two covenants. How can God keep unconditionally a promise that he made to his people and at the same time turn away from them when they reject and break his law? How do you fix that? It seems like there's an impasse there. They, they can't come together, can they? The new covenant is the answer. The only way God can fulfill both this unconditional Abrahamic covenant and satisfy the demands of the Mosaic covenant. How does he bring it together? New covenant. Watch this. It's amazing. Let me give you this on regeneration first. This is from our statement of faith. We believe and teach that salvation comes only through the divinely initiated, supernatural work of regeneration. New birth by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with the testimony of the gospel of Christ. Always, always in connection with the testimony of the gospel. This sovereign, the work of God, and instantaneous work, it happens without our awareness. Some people even refer it to as, as the secret work. of it. it happens without our doing it or knowing it. It's just boom! Instantaneous work. It overcomes the sinner's depraved resistance, suppressing of the truth, and it enables the sinner and secures the sinner's willful, keyword there, willful, not against my will. I'm not saved kicking and screaming. I'm saved with a will set free. I willfully respond to the gospel, and it's displayed in repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ, not only a Savior, but as Lord. That is how God saves people. Isn't that amazing? The work is regeneration. It's circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. That's what it is. In connection to the proclamation of the Gospel. Amazing. The Father, He elects. The Son accomplishes the salvation. The Spirit applies it in power. Regeneration. It's all focused on Jesus Christ and it's to the glory of the Father forever. Amazing. Amazing. Trinitarian salvation. Listen to the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. This is how God solves the impasse that He had planned from the beginning. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all of your idols. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Wow. I will put a new spirit within you. That's regeneration. This is new covenant. In connection with the work of Christ in the gospel, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's a heart transplant. I will put my spirit in you. And here's the answer. Who's doing this? Who's the one doing this? This is God, Abrahamic. I will do this. Mosaic, how do we satisfy that? I will cause you to obey me. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, do you feel why Paul is emphasizing the significance of obedience? Someone who would walk around and say, I'm a Christian, yet live their life completely contrary to the Lord is is, is denying their claim. Obedience is the fruit of repentance. It is the work of God that brings it to pass. Jesus had this fascinating encounter in John chapter 3, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, water, right? The birth. That which is born of the flesh. That's all of us here. Born of the flesh. Is flesh. That's natural man. That which is born of the Spirit, regeneration, the work of God in connection with the Gospel, is spirit. Life. Eternal life. This is what Jesus is referring to in his interaction in John 3. This is what Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 2. It builds out in so many other scriptures, but this is the way salvation happens. It's a glorious reality. Regeneration is the work of God. And so we can say it this way. Those whom God has saved have been given new and willing hearts to love and obey Him. Completely inconsistent for the Jews or for anybody to say, oh, I love the Lord. I love His law. I love it and I don't live it at all. That's hypocrisy. But right next to that might be someone who says, oh, I love the law. I I love the Lord and I'm trying to obey Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love Him. I love Him. I delight in His commandments. Your testimony is my delight. I meditate on them day and night. I love Your law to do it. Hmm. You can see why how, how our lives need to align with our label. Salvation from our sins and from God's wrath is by grace alone. Now we say these words. Let me build this out. By grace alone. When we say that, this is what we mean. It is the work of God. Not your work. You didn't earn it. You didn't accomplish it. He gave it supernaturally and instantaneously through His Spirit's power when He regenerated your dead heart and gave you a heart transplant to give you a willing heart to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. That is the work of God. And it's accomplished through faith alone. That faith is the very gift of God that He gives you that you enact 
and say, oh, Jesus, save me from my sins. I don't look to anything else, not my performance, not my work, not my doing, certainly not my deserving. I look to Jesus alone. And then we say, for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. It's good news, friends. Good news. Wow. Our response this morning, these are deep and true things of the gospel. Good news for sinners lost in sin. Just thinking about this. You came in today. And it's really possible that you might have walked in this church today with a misplaced confidence. Maybe looking to your family and just assuming, well, mom and dad, they love Jesus and, and, and they go to this church. And, and so I guess I just, if I'm here, I'm okay. Hmm. Maybe looking to your education. Well, I went to Bible school, man. I, I, I know this stuff. I'm okay. Maybe looking to position. Well, I've been a Sunday school teacher in churches before. I mean, I, I've, I've read through my Bible. I, I could teach in this church. That's my confidence. Hmm. How about ceremony? Well, when I was, you know, eight years old, I walked the aisle. What about your life from that point on? It's so easy. Friends, don't get me wrong. I love that moment that you decided to follow Jesus. But are you following Him? Jesus would likely say, it's not that you did believe. Do you believe? Today, don't turn your conversion into an, a meritorious work that you have done. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and rest completely upon Him. Trust Him alone. Nothing in my hands I bring only to the work of Christ for me do I cling. It's Him alone. He is the only Savior. Trust and glory in Jesus Christ. And I would, I would add this. I have this on my wall. Every time we, we, we go out as a worship team to, to lead you in singing, we see this. Put no confidence in the flesh. In yourself. In your doing earning, whatever it might be. Don't put any confidence there. Put all your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died to save you from your sins. It is finished, He said. Trust Him. And trust Him alone. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we see these things and they, they move in our direction and oh, how it meets us. Lord, I stand here as a sinner. Saved by grace. I stand as one who is a work in progress along with all of us here in this room. One who delights in a Savior who has finished the work to save. One who is undeserving, Lord, of that grace. I give praise to you for saving me, for opening my eyes to see Jesus Christ and stirring in me a new heart of faith to repent of my sin and run to Him with all my might. I thank You for that work that You accomplished in me to bring me to life, and I give glory to You for it. I pray, O oh Lord, if there be any here right now who are feeling that maybe their confidence is shaken, 
because of what I've just preached, I pray that they would look to Jesus Christ. That you would even now stir in their hearts a new heart. A willing heart to repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ. Open their eyes to see the glory of a Savior who loved them and gave himself for them. Bring them to repentance even now, I pray. Give them life. In the name of Jesus. Amen.